Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the DS30 podcast. My name is Anna. And my name is Michael Cullen. And today we're going to be interviewing one of our colleagues, actually, uh, Don Fox, who is a, a fellow data science instructor at the Data Incubator and at Pragmatic Institute. And Don's going to talk to us about uh, industry data science in renewable energy. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. We have a very exciting topic that we'll be talking about today, um, but maybe before we get into that, we usually like to start our podcast with our guests introducing themselves. So do you want to tell us just a little bit about your background, um, about your PhD, because I know it's related to the topic of today, and then maybe how you got into data science and all of that? Yeah, sure. No problem. So my name is Don. I'm one of the instructors here at Pragmatic Institute working on the data side. So I teach courses anywhere from introduction to Python all the way to deep learning with TensorFlow. And my background is in chemical engineering. Uh, that's what I did my PhD in. Specifically, what I did is research on renewable energy systems. And specifically of renewable energy systems is geothermal energy systems. And then specifically with geothermal energy systems are these, call, are these systems called enhanced or engineered geothermal energy systems. And what EGS, as it's got, often called is short, is a way to expand the application of geothermal energy. And we're talking about deep source. So imagine uh, you drill a well. And if you go deep enough into the earth, we're talking about maybe one to six kilometers deep or kilometers, how it's probably pronounced, uh, you will find a hot reservoir of rock. And what you can do is you can flow in water through this system of fractures. And as that water goes through, it heats up. The water heats up, it goes through, you pump it back up through a production well. And then with that heated water, compressed heated uh, fluid, you can run, you can turn a, you can uh, turn a turbine, you can use district heating. Uh, that is the source of energy. When I say geothermal energy systems, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, there are other variations of geothermal energy systems. There are ground source heat pumps. They're a lot shallower, more for maybe running a, the, uh, the heating and cooling of a building. But here we're talking about deep source, uh, uh, producing enough energy to power some facility, a small town. We're talking deep source. Uh, so one of the things is that ideally, you don't have to drill very There's a lot of uncertainty with drilling. Uh, so I hope you find a, a source where you don't have to drill so deep. You can start flowing water, water um, and it heats up rather quickly. And, but as you can imagine, as you're flowing cold water through hot reservoir rock, it starts to cool down. It starts to cool down. So eventually, you're not going to be able to produce as much energy through that system as before. However, you might have locally depleted the resource. But if you just let it stop using it and maybe shift your operations somewhere else and then run a different system nearby that aren't thermally connected because it's you know, far enough apart, then you can let that resource naturally recover. So one of my areas of research was understanding that recovery process. Because if we understand the recovery process, we can run a sustainable system. We call it heat farming, uh, right? You, you harvest the energy 
uh, you've locally depleted the resource, no problem. Let's go somewhere else and let it naturally recover. As you can imagine, there's still a hot pocket of rot surrounded by that cold resource, so it heats up back up. And one of the things we found out through our research is that recovery time is maybe about two to four times the length of extraction. So in other words, if you were to use that resource for five years, you have to let it rest for, let's say, 10 to 20 years. So it's not one-to-one, -one, but it's definitely a lot more renewable when you consider the time scale of generating fossil fuels. Uh, so that was, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, one aspect of my research. Then one was modeling the interaction of fractures in the subsurface and how that will affect your production temperature. And the other thing that we, that, uh, that we did in our research was the fact that these fractures, they're not smooth. You can model them as smooth, but that's a idealized system. There's a lot of asperities and fracture apertures and variations that are going to affect the way the fluid flows. And if you affect the way the fluid flows, that affects how well it harvests the thermal energy. So we took, we, we can take profiles of these fractures of rock cores and understand the asperities between them. And then perhaps we can try to understand that asperity profile in our fractures in the beginning of the lifetime of the reservoir. So we can be able to project how long that resource will last. But you can imagine if we have a, a situation where we're trying to figure out what is the aperture thickness at uh, every point in the fracture, that is a high degree problem. So many degrees of freedom. You can use a computational mesh to um, to realize that that uh, that fracture face, but there's so many degrees of freedom because you're trying to understand what is the fracture aperture here and that position, that position, that position, that position. So that's intractable. Uh, you can use tracers. In other words, you can put some sort of chemical in some sort of fluid, a benign chemical, and then have it flow through the fracture network and then measure the concentration of that of the fluid and, and, and measure the concentration of that chemical. And that profile is a signal that has in it the imprint of the fracture system. So can you take that data, that information, and figure out what is the fracture surface? How does that look like? Um, but even then, you're trying to solve a high degree problem. However, however, if we have a large set of fracture cores, and we were to be able to take this and reduce the dimensions of the system, as opposed to having a uh, understanding what is the fracture aperture at every position, maybe we can learn that fracture surfaces are really governed by maybe a large scale variation, a large scale variation, maybe just kind of a sine curve throughout the fracture phase. And maybe we learn that another dominant configuration is maybe two waves across the fracture surface. And then we can say, wait, instead of, under, instead of trying to solve a problem, we're trying to figure out the aperture thickness every position of the fracture face. Maybe instead we target what is the coefficient for those dominant modes we figure out through a technique called principal component analysis, a proper orthogonal decomposition is what I called it for a while. And that is a technique that is a core machine learning technique. And when I was doing it for my PhD, I didn't know it was a core machine learning technique. I just did it because that's what uh, was going to solve our problem. Uh, so there was actually, uh, not to toot my own horn, but there was a paper that was just accepted about a couple of weeks ago uh, for water resources research that talks about this inversion technique using principal component analysis uh, out at a test site up in upstate New York. Uh, Altona, New York, or Altoona, forget the exact pronunciation, right near the Canadian border. Uh, we, there we have access to a very small 
uh, 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 a very small, oh, let me put that again. We have access to a test system, very shallow system, maybe maybe two meters deep. That's, uh, I believe it's uh, sandstone and there's fracture aperture variations. Uh, we were to mimic uh, a large scale geothermal energy system and use some of these uh, principal component analysis, use some of these inversion techniques we had to use that we developed uh, during my time uh, at Cornell for my PhD. So it's exciting that the things that I was doing for my PhD has a direct application uh, to, uh, to these, uh, to, ah. let me repeat that again. Uh, it was very exciting that my research actually had a direct application to real world. Uh, a lot of the stuff I did was simulations, but the stuff that continued on afterwards was actually implemented to a test site, a very small test site. And hey, uh, we can use techniques like machine learning to uh, boost the performance, boost or reduce the uncertainty of these renewable energy systems. Because that's one of the problems that are hampered by these systems is that there's a lot of uncertainty involved. And if we're able to use machine learning, use it, if we have to reduce that uncertainty, then we can make these systems a lot more profitable, a lot more um, economically viable. Fantastic. Now, I, I, I want to just um, maybe touch on a, a few things there, just to make sure, um, like a little bit of clarification, perhaps. Um, uh, but, you know, certainly sounds like a, a very um, pun intended, you know, deep topic and one that has a lot of applications in the real world. But um, so, so you mentioned that we have these these wells um, and that you're getting this kind of renewable energy source. Um, this is something where, uh, you know, like you mentioned with like the extraction, is this something where the well is uh, pre-existing from like fossil fuel extraction and you're continuing to get value out of it, kind of reusing something that other might otherwise might go to waste or is this we're digging for the sake of geothermal energy. Yeah, so this actually kind of, uh, now that you bring this up, this uh, kind of ties with the work I did after my PhD. Uh, I was working for a renewable energy startup company. And what we're looking to do since drilling wells are very expensive, very uncertain, is we were looking to see, can we identify wells that have ever been drilled, right? That cost has been sunk, so to speak. Uh, and these abandoned wells, and can we reuse them? Uh, so can we take some sort of uh, a data set of abandoned wells, and in that data set, we have information about how deep the well is, the bottom hole temperature, the thermal conductivity, uh, a couple other well log information, things that are very necessary to understand the grade of the resource if we were to reuse that well for a geothermal energy system. So one of the things that I did was take this data set, uh, uh, you know, how to clean it up because some of the fields were like, it's a million degrees and, you know, uh, 10 feet into, you know, like uh, 100 meters deep. That doesn't make sense. So there, it was a bit dirty. I had to clean it up. Uh, it was uh, too big to uh, analyze in Excel. So I was using tools like uh, Python and Pandas. And that's some of the things we teach here at the Data Incubator. I use those tools, clean up the data, uh, use those fields to calculate, to get an estimate of the grade of the resource, and then use a couple conditions saying, okay, this is the grade of the resource. We're looking for wells this deep. We're also looking for wells that are really close together because if we were to implement this heat farming strategy of kind of rotating wells throughout, it'd be very great if we identify wells that are clustered together. And that's one of the things I did when I was working for Startup companies identify these candidate places because, as Michael was saying, hey, let's reuse some of the wells that have been drilled. We eliminate the uncertainty of the drilling costs and that large capital cost, and we can 
just focus on the actual modification and the energy production of these systems. Okay, wonderful. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you know, like this is something I think that that generalizes to you know things I hear across, uh, really you know people working in in every industry, which is that we you know it'd be great to do something new, but we we have this this wealth of old data, you know, and, the, and these old resources, but we might not know how to how to get something from them. And we have to find this balance between maybe a really simple approach we already have and you know some extremely complicated one we can't really not really feasible and that's where machine learning comes in um so that's that's really really wonderful really interesting to hear so maybe um you know another thing we could talk about is you know perhaps if there's any like big use cases um or you know maybe like other kind of like really exciting use cases you've seen uh you know kind of in similar like renewable energy and ml one area that I've seen where people are using data science and machine learning to improve the competitiveness of renewable energy is uh, wind energy. So as you can imagine, the problem with solar and wind is it's an intermittent energy source, right? The sun goes down, the wind stops blowing. So there's a lot of uncertainty or, uh, revolving around that energy source. And this is something that fossil fuels don't have a problem with. Uh, the capacity factor, in other words, uh, how, uh, how often it's turned on a power plant running fossil fuels is about 90%. Uh, when you talk about wind and solar, I think it's around, maybe it's gotten better, but anywhere from 10 to, to 30. And that's a problem. So we got to solve that problem, this intermittent problem. And what is valued a lot for electricity grids is uh, is certainty, be able to deliver power of uh, this amount at this amount of time. And that is something solar and wind have a problem with. So you can think of the business cases, cases here is, can we better forecast how much power we will to produce from, let's say, a wind farm? How can we better understand we're going to produce so much uh, power at a certain amount of time so we can negotiate better contracts? So there's one approach is to scale up your wind farm, uh, have an overcapacity. But that's kind of expensive, right? You're kind of over-engineering. Uh, so that's a you know, lot more capital costs. The other thing you can do is you can say, well, we can maybe produce a lot of power, or a lot of uh, electricity, and then store that in, let's say, batteries. And while battery technology is something that has been advancing every, every so often, uh, it's a great area of your research in this energy profile, um, it's, it's still kind of expensive. So it's not tractable. We kind of want to avoid that situation. So you can imagine the business case here is how can we better forecast the power production so we can better negotiate contracts to generate greater revenue in our wind farm. And Google has an interest in reducing their carbon footprint. So one of the things they did is with DeepMind, their, I think, offshoot company, uh, which focused on using machine learning, uh, using data science to make predictions, have these powerful models, is can we better forecast power production 36 hours in advance? Can we better negotiate those contracts. So what they did is they took, they have access to about 700 megawatts uh, power capacity for wind farms, I think in, in the central part of the U.S. And about 700 megawatts is uh I, I did the back of back of the envelope calculation earlier today, and that's enough to power, I think, 50 to 100,000 people. Uh, so maybe a small to medium-sized city. And can we take the 
historic weather data. Uh, can we take the historic performance of these turbines? Can we also use better weather models to be able to understand what is our power production 36 hours in advance? And then take that and be able to negotiate a better deal. And what they realize is that through these models, they're able to generate or increase revenue by 20%. Uh, increase their revenue by 20%. So they're a lot more profitable, a lot more competitive, squeeze more, I uh, guess, more juice out of the system, right? Uh, better optimize it with. So the combination of uh, using historical weather data, historical turbine data, better weather uh, forecasting models, and they were successful. Generate revenue by 20%. I think a lot of companies will be, would really like to increase that revenue by 20%. Yeah. Do you know if the increase in revenue came just from good predictions, therefore kind of planning better and negotiating better, or were there any other levers that they were able to pull or kind of what went into that 20 degree, yeah. 20%, sorry, increase? If you were to think about the three pillars of a good data science project is they had the data, there was a business metric they're trying to optimize on, and that was how much revenue. And the lever they had was the negotiation of the price based upon how much they're going to promise to the grid. And they were able to control that. Uh, they had more faith in playing around with that lever through the fact that they had more, less uncertainty revolving around their power production. I'm guessing the other levers they had was perhaps uh, be able to turn off certain turbines or uh, increase maybe the more focus on certain parts of the wind farm based a little more, a little more micro weather uh, path there. So I'm guessing there was more optimization in the running of the system. Uh, so you can think of both the downstream of the negotiation, but also upstream on the actual, how do we best optimize the physical operation of, of these turbines? That's definitely a lever they had access to as well. And, you know, I, I think there's something, um, you know, again, that generalizes really well here. Um, and so maybe we could, we could talk about this a little bit too. So, you know, when we teach the business of data science, right, this course, we, we talk so much about those three pillars. We talk about the things you need for something to be useful and, and maybe not just interesting. Um, and, you know, like you said, those, the right data, the right levers, the actions we can take, um, the right metrics. Um, and so, you know, if you could, it, I wonder, maybe you could just go into those a little bit more, you know, why or how we can make data science useful an industry thinking about the problem and not just, you know, the, the cool tools and techniques that we often like to talk about. I think the, if we were to go back to this, uh, this case study, if there was no, what was, if they kind of came in sort of, Hey, we, un we know how to create neural networks. We know how to create very powerful deep learning models. If they came at that approach there and then say, how can we shoehorn this, into this into this uh, this business case, then they might have spent all their development time producing really cool uh, machine learning model that is highly accurate, uh, maybe best R squared value on against a test set, very impressive. But if they realize that the fact that they're able to let's say predict uh, power production, let's say for the next hour, that's not very useful uh, because we really want to predict power production in the next. 36 hours. So there is, you know, you got to make sure that you don't chase the shiny tools. You don't chase the shiny things, the impressive applications, right? Let's ground ourselves in what is the business problem we have? What is that business problem? Let's flesh it out. Let's outline it. 
and let's consider those three pillars. What is the data we have? What is the business metric we're trying to optimize on? And what are the actions, right? If there is, who cares if you have a pretty good prediction, a, rare, a very great prediction, if there's nothing you, can, you really do. Oh, we can predict we're going to produce this much power in the next uh, 10 minutes. So what, right? You can just kind of show it off. So you got to make sure that while it's great to have those impressive applications, those impressive uh, tools and those impressive models, you got to ground yourself in what is that business problem? What are those three pillars? Um, you have to advance. Okay, this is something worth investing. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I really couldn't have put it better myself. Um, and so, you know, and something you mentioned earlier too is that that in this, you know, clearly very successful project with Google, that you know, this helped them to compete with other, you know, classical energy sources. Like you said, we have so much more certainty with things like fossil fuels. Um, and so, if you could just talk maybe a little bit about, you know, sort of this this competitive advantage, you know, like why, why sometimes we need these kinds of techniques to, you know, break into an established market or sort of maybe disrupt things. Maybe in this case, maybe kind of in general, just kind of whatever, you know, whatever kind of comes to mind. Yeah. And this is classic, right? This is David versus Goliath, right? And we see this played out in across multiple industries where there's an entrenched uh, very established company, and you know they're rather big. They got a large part of the market, um, but then here comes a very small competitor. And while the competitor has some disadvantages, right? They don't have access to uh, as infinite amount, not infinite amount of money, large sets amount of money, a lot of staff, a lot of customer data. They don't have access to that, um, but they're going to be nimble. They understand the power of data. Uh, making data-driven decisions. Uh, so they're going to use, let's say, data science and machine learning to get that competitive edge over that entrenched company. And the entrenched company, since the generally speaking, larger companies have uh, more inertia for change, a lot of these nibble companies can put as very early on in their business approach in their mission statement is being data-driven. And that's going to give them the competitive advantage over the entrenched businesses who might be sitting upon all this data, but aren't making use of it, don't even know where it's collected, where it's stored, uh, how it's processed, who has access to it. They have no way, nowhere to start in this, in this problem here. They don't know how to ask the best questions. They don't know how to best develop a data science a problem that data science can solve. And you have this nimbler company says, okay, we're going to take a more data-driven approach. And that's going to, while they're lacking, maybe saying the resources and maybe the history in, the, um, in this space here, they will more quickly gain that competitive advantage, do things differently uh, to make them more competitive and make them, uh, you know, uh, attract more attention, attract more investors, attract uh, uh, more news articles and uh, people want to work with that new company. So we see this play throughout various sorts of industries, not just renewable energy. In this case, the David is these uh, these renewable energy sources have to compete against the more entrenched large corporations who are running, uh, who are in the business of fossil fuels. Awesome. Yeah. David versus Goliath. Fossil fuel industry, they're maybe doing something well, unintended, but with these new techniques, renew renewable energy, maybe we can do something better. Um, well, Don, you know, we're, we're kind of running up against, uh, kind of running out of time here. So, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time for coming on the show um, and for, you know, getting into all this like very interesting and certainly very, very useful 
uh, information. So yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Don. Yeah, no problem. That was nice.